Thank you to the Halls. That was lovely. Gary was giving me a hard time last week because she says I say that's lovely every week. She said, you need to find another adjective. And I said, it's an adverb. Uh, John chapter 7 is where we'll be today. Last Sunday of November, or I'm sorry, of October, I'm getting ahead of myself. Last Sunday of October, John chapter 7, we'll be looking at verses 25 to 52. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be? That the authorities really know that this is the Christ. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am. You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then sent to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, 
Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for this day and for the opportunity to come together again to worship you. May you bless our time as we study your word and proclaim your gospel. May our hearts and minds be transformed by the truths of your scriptures, that Jesus is the Lord who has come into the world to redeem sinful humanity. Lord, we continue to pray for our community as COVID cases are on the rise. May we continue to trust in you, but to also exercise wisdom in our judgments. Lord, we do pray for people who are afflicted with this virus. We pray for our state and for our surrounding communities. And Lord, we pray for our nation, as it has been an exhausting year with COVID, economic issues, civil unrest, heated political tensions. Lord, may we continue to rise above all of that and to trust in you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, part of this passage we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, but to make sense of where we're going in this passage, I think it was important to uh, include some of what precedes the section where we'll be. As we've noted numerous times, Jesus in John chapter 7 is at the Feast of Booths. He's speaking before a group of people at this point. He's in Jerusalem at the temple. And so I look at this entire passage that I just read through in three scenes. Verses 25 to 36 is what we looked at two weeks ago. Verses 37 to 39 is a second scene. That's where we preached last week. And the remainder of the passage is the third scene and where we'll ultimately spend most of our time this morning. But I think the first point to make is that when we look at the first and the third scene of this passage, is that they actually have a lot of similarities to each other. Both in the beginning and the end of the passage, we see confusion as to the origins of Jesus. In the beginning and ending scenes, we see that there are some people who are drawn to Jesus and others who are not, others who reject Jesus. In both the first scene and the last scene, you see people questioning what others believe about Jesus, sometimes in accusatory tones. In both the first and the final scene of this passage, you see some people who want Jesus to be arrested, which is ultimately unsuccessful. And the reason why I point out all of these similarities between the first scene and the third scene of this passage is because I believe that it makes everything hinge on the second scene. Uh, the, the, in the middle of the passage, in the midst of all of this chaos, this raucous environment, everything surrounding Jesus, where he stands up in the middle of the passage and says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We see all of the division and differing opinions among the various groups in this chapter. But that's the way the world is. 
The world has all sorts of assumptions it makes about Jesus and who he is. And that's what we see in this passage. There are those who are asking if Jesus could be the Christ. There are those who are explaining why Jesus can't be who he claims to be. And you have those who are outwardly hostile to Jesus. That's how the world is. We have all these groups. We have all sorts of assumptions about Jesus. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In the middle of the passage when Jesus says that, regardless of what we assume about Jesus, what he's saying is that none of that ultimately matters. Jesus isn't calling on people to have it all figured out and then come to him. He's not saying that we need to be master theologians before we believe in him. He's not saying that we need to have all of our ducks in a row morally and then come to him. He's not giving an exhaustive explanation of the Old Testament and why he is the Christ and should be worshipped and praised. He simply says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Regardless of the arguments for or against Jesus, regardless of what a person thinks about Jesus or what the world tells us about Jesus, that if we truly want to know Jesus and what he's all about, that we have to experience Jesus. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Again, we can have all sorts of opinions about Jesus. But he invites us to come and to know him. He invites us to experience him. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, providentially referenced by you guys in your song, we didn't plan that. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He invites us to find our rest in him. He invites us to approach him. He invites us to find our hope. Jesus doesn't say in this passage that the strong or the superior find rest in him. But it's that those who are weak and heavy laden. That is the goodness of Jesus. That he came to a dead world to bring life. He came to a guilty world. To bring forgiveness. He came to a prideful world. To bring grace. Jesus calls us to believe in him. In Romans 10.13 it says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again to look at a verse we looked at last week. Revelation 22.17. One of the last five or six verses in the entire Bible. The spirit and the bride say come and let the... Let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Jesus invites us. He invites us to come to him. He invites the spiritually thirsty to come to him and drink the water that he offers. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the offer. 
Jesus makes to the crowd in John chapter 7. And it's the offer that he makes to the whole world for those who are spiritually thirsty to come to him, to know him, to believe in him, to worship him, to come and drink. And with that, we come to the main part of our passage we're looking at today. And it's looking at the fallout of what Jesus has said. And once again, we will see three different responses from the audience. First, we see the positive response to Jesus, verses 40 into 41. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. So some suggest that Jesus could be the prophet. Others suggest that he could be the Christ. They're both right. In the first century, there were some who thought that these two figures were two different people. But in reality, Jesus is both. Let me explain that further. The prophet and the Christ. For the people who heard that Jesus, they heard him teaching and they wonder if he could be the prophet. The 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 is important. It's kind of like the Ohio State University. They're not questioning if Jesus could be a prophet like Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah. They're asking if he could be the prophet, which is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses is still leading the Israelites in their desert wanderings. And he talks of a future time when a greater leader than he will come and lead Israel. Looking at Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so the people question if Jesus could be this long ago promised prophet. We actually discussed this passage or this idea a little over a year ago when we were in chapter 1. When John the Baptist was teaching and there were people who wondered if he was the prophet. And he's quick to set the record straight in John chapter 1 that he is not. Then again we see this idea, John chapter 6. After Jesus feeds the multitudes, the immediate response of the crowd in John 6.14 When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Back in our passage this morning, there are people who wonder if Jesus could be the prophet. But you also have those who wonder if Jesus could be the Christ. And I think it's important to give this reminder that the term Christ is not a last name. Like Jesus' parents were not Joseph and Mary Christ. It's his title. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed. And in the Old Testament, the king of Israel, the high priest, the prophets, they would be anointed with oil. Olive oil, not motor oil. They didn't have cars. But they would use olive oil to ceremonially, they would pour it on this anointed person. Also in the temple, some of the objects within the temple would be anointed with oil. And the anointing was meant to show that a thing was consecrated to the Lord and set aside. 
And so in the first century, there were people who were looking forward to a coming anointed one, a coming Christ. And so when Jesus is teaching here, there are people who wonder if he could be that person. So we have two camps. Some who wonder if Jesus could be the prophet. Others asking if he could be the Christ. And the answer is yes, he's both. He is the prophet and he is the Christ. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecies of both. He is the long ago promised prophet to lead Israel into the true promised land, the new heaven and the new earth. But he is also God's anointed one, the Christ. He fulfills the Old Testament. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross and died and rose so that all those who believe in him are forgiven. So that's our first scene. That's the favorable response to who Jesus is. And that's not saying that all the people in that camp are confessing believers or truly understand the gospel, but they're drawn to Jesus. We come to a second group. And in the second group, we see people who are explaining why Jesus can't be the Christ. The second group is people who don't believe that Jesus is who the first group thinks he is. They don't believe he's the Christ, but they're also not militant about their opinion. Rest of verse 41 through the end of verse 43. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Again, you have this long-expected Christ figure. And so the Israelites had opinions of what he would be like. And just like at the beginning of this section, the passage we looked at two weeks ago, some look to the origins of Jesus as disqualifying that he could be the Christ. <clears throat> Some of the people point to the fact that Jesus is from Galilee and look at that as a reason as to why Jesus cannot be the Christ. Because the Jewish people all knew Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for, for see one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. They knew that the Christ had to come from Bethlehem. We all know the Christmas songs. Jesus was from Bethlehem, though. They said that the Christ had to come from the line of David, which Jesus did. So what's happening here is that there are people in the crowd who actually do have some correct understanding of the Bible, but they do not have the correct understanding of the facts about Jesus. It makes me think of the famous quote from Mark Twain. What gets us into trouble is not what we don't know. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. And that's something we can all be guilty of. Having our facts wrong. But in this case, that falsity is pointing them away from the Savior of the world. 
Once again, I think that is something that often happens in our world. People have part of the truth. They know a little bit about Jesus or a little bit about the Bible. They hear God is love and so assume that moral opinions are somehow unbiblical. They think Jesus is good, but they don't really believe he's the Lord and so they don't really believe in him. They think Jesus is quaint or nice, but they don't look at him as their savior. So much of the world takes slivers of truth about Jesus, but misses the whole point of why he came. It was because the world was dead in sin, and true life could only come from a perfect savior who died for the sins we committed, and in that reconcile us, to a righteous God. That there was no other way for us to do that. There was no other way for us to be good enough. That is the gospel. And so from the crowd, we've seen those who think that he's the Christ, those who think he's the prophet, and those who think he's not the prophet. The second group doesn't believe in Jesus, but again, they're not out and out hostile to him here. And really, that's where much of the world is, where much of our society is. There are lots of biblical passages that talk about persecution, that talk about opposition to Jesus and his followers. There are lots of news stories about opposition to Christianity and persecution in other parts of the world. We mentioned earlier this morning in the announcements, next Sunday, November 1st, is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. There are people all over the world who are persecuted for their faith. And that's important and significant. And we should pray for those people. And I point that out right now because I think it's on our radar to consider strong-armed opposition to Jesus. But this second group is not like that. They're just explaining why they don't believe that he's the Christ. But there's no middle ground with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You believe in him, or you don't. So I ask, what do you believe? Is he the Christ? Is he the Savior of the world? Is he your Lord? Or does he not fit the criteria that you think matters? The danger humanity faces isn't only those who are opposed to Jesus, but it's also those who are indifferent to Jesus. Because the person who is indifferent to Jesus can be tempted to still think that they're all right with Jesus when they're not. There is no middle ground. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the word who became flesh. He's the God who was in the beginning. And he has made a way for a sinful people to be forgiven. And he did that by going to the cross. Again, we don't have to have it all figured out. But we must come to him and believe. And with that we see a third group. The opposing response to Jesus. Verse 44. We see that there are people in the crowd who think that Jesus should be arrested for what he's saying. Verse 44. 
Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And as we've discussed before, at this point in John's gospel, we're seeing increasing hostility to Jesus. There are people who want him arrested. There are people who want him silenced. There are people who want him killed. And what follows in the passage are the interactions between these various groups of people. Another attempt is made to arrest Jesus. We've already seen an unsuccessful attempt in the first scene. And here again, the temple guards are sent for Jesus. But the officers of the temple don't follow through. Verses 45 and 46. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The priests and the Pharisees are outraged. Like a looming cloud, their opposition to Christ hangs over the rest of the passage. The guards did not follow through on their orders to arrest Jesus. Something to note briefly about this passage. When we hear of the religious leaders sending guards of the temple to arrest Jesus, I think it's important to understand that this wasn't the SWAT team. Uh, They didn't send in the Marines to get this done. The temple guards were religious figures who were the Levites who were responsible for tending to the temple. So the chief priests might have sent the guards to arrest Jesus, but the guards also have opinions. They have opinions on the Christ and what he would be like. And they've heard Jesus' teaching. And so these guards, these Levites, they're taken by what Jesus has said. No one has ever spoken like this man. Jesus' words are forceful. They're moving. They confront us. To paraphrase an idea from the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, that the guards were sent to arrest Jesus... But it is they who were arrested by his words. They did not take Jesus, but were taken by the power of his message. And so again, we see the intermingling of these different responses to Jesus. The positive and negative responses to Jesus coming into conflict with each other. The Pharisees berate the guards. And then really they basically lash out against everyone else in the audience. We see those who are sympathetic to Jesus coming into conflict with those who oppose Jesus. Verses 47 and 48. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? They're extremely critical. D.A. Carson adds a helpful point in his response, or in the response of the Pharisees, that the leaders aren't so much angered at the guards for failing to follow through on an order. The derision of the authorities comes to the temple guard because they're not listening to their spiritual and theological authorities. And that the guards and the eye of the priests and the Pharisees, if they really knew the Old Testament, should have known better than to be sympathetic to Jesus' message. That's really the crux of their anger in this situation. 
In verse 48, they ask if any of the authorities or Pharisees have believed in Jesus. And the irony is that the answer to that is yes. And then the religious authorities also continue to berate the crowd and criticize and insult the crowd. Verse 49. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Basically what they're saying is, look, these people are too dumb to know what's what. So yeah, they might believe, but you guys shouldn't. People who have some theological training should know better than this. It's pretty condescending of them. But we're seeing all of these differing opinions about who Jesus is intermingling with each other. And then we come to verse 50. I think somewhat of a climactic moment of this part of the passage. The return of a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and he was one of them. When it says one of them, he's, he's a Pharisee. He's a religious teacher. Said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's trying to be the voice of reason. Hey, let's, let's hear this guy out. But the response he gets is, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus, if you remember, he's introduced in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. He's, he's the leading theologian and scholar in Israel. And in John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus. He's intrigued by Jesus' teachings. And in that famous passage, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus had responded with questioning originally. But here, we see Nicodemus coming to the defense of Jesus. And we'll see him reappear one other time in this gospel after Jesus is crucified. We're never told specifically whether or not Nicodemus comes to faith. But the fact that John continues to bring him back throughout the story indicates that Nicodemus saw Jesus for who he was. Nicodemus speaks up on Jesus' behalf. He suggests that they give a fair evaluation to Jesus' words. But again, the other religious authorities lash out against him for even suggesting that, for even wanting to dignify Jesus. We see these conflicts. We see these differing opinions. And again, these conflicts should not be surprising because as I've said many times in many other sermons, the gospel is offensive. The message of Christ and him crucified and coming to the redeem to redeem the world is offensive because it confronts us with our sin and coming to terms with our own sin it confronts us with our eternal hope it confronts us with placing our faith and trust in something outside of ourselves the gospel is offensive and so we have all of these different responses we see these conflicts in response to what Jesus promised and the solution to all of that is Jesus himself. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What do you believe? The only response is to accept Jesus and to believe in him. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son who has come into the world, who is Lord, 
Lord, may he be our Savior. May we trust and believe in him. May we find life and hope and goodness through him. In Jesus' name, amen.